Has anybody ever told you a decision that they made and then immediately started justifying the decision that they made? I think it's pretty common, at least in America. I know I have. I've made decisions my whole life, and then I start trying to justify them. Um, a couple examples that come to mind is we were on vacation a couple years ago. We bought a Nissan Xterra. And it was, we bought it because our van died. It was, there was nothing else we could do. If we wanted to get home, we needed a vehicle to get home. It's not a car I would have sought out, but it was almost like my dream car. Okay? And I was able to get this on vacation, but I feel like I have to justify to everybody that I meet. That's why I have this car is because it was a vacation thing. I had to buy something. I didn't want another minivan, and I, had, uh, I needed something bigger than a car to hold all my stuff. See, I just justified my decision on buying this Xterra that I really like to have. Uh, people justify, why do they quit a job? You know, like, I don't like the job, and all of a sudden, I feel like I can't just say I hate the job. I have to go into all these reasons why I quit this job. Everybody understand and can think of situations where people have done that. It doesn't really matter most of the time. If, if people justify to me a decision that they make, I don't really think anything about it. A lot of times I think, it's your money. It's your decision. You do whatever you want. It's your life. It, it really doesn't really matter to me because it's your choice. So you don't have to give me excuses. You don't have to justify to me why you did what you did. When it comes to spiritual things, sometimes, though, people do the same thing. They justify why what they did that was wrong was really okay for them to do or why they really didn't have to do what Scripture was pretty clear that they needed to do. For example, I've heard people say, I will not forgive so-and-so because they have hurt me too much, because of something bad that they did. And it doesn't matter if you take them to Scripture and you show them this is what it says, and they're a professing believer, and they will not do it, but they justify it. They make excuses for why they won't do it. Okay? Um, my, my favorite one, uh, I hope I can say this correctly, is, as people justify the gossip that they share, and they, they hide it in a prayer request, okay? You know, uh, boy, you, you just need to know, uh, Leslie, that your Josh, I don't want to pick on anybody else, was out drinking last night, rolled his car, got this big fat ticket. He's going to be in jail for the next three weeks. Please pray for the family. It's hard on the family. And so they're justifying or making excuses that it's okay for me to tell you this gossip, because I, it's a prayer request, all right? You, know, you understand it. We're just justifying what we want to do that probably is not something we're supposed to do. Now, if I can justify my decision and everybody else agrees with me, does that make me correct and right in my justification or my excuses? No. I mean, we can fool a bunch of humans, but you know who is never fooled by the choices and the decisions that we make? Anybody? God isn't. He can see right through those decisions that you make. Here's the take-home truth for today. Okay, this is the one thing I want to make sure everybody understands when you walk out this door. There are no good excuses for disobeying God's commands. God deserves obedience from A to Z. So that means the small little things that we do that nobody knows. It works within our minds. Nobody sees and we can get away with, we need to be obedient in the A things. The, on the scale of 1 to 10 would be that little thing that's a 1. It's really not that big a deal. To the scale of 10, the big thing that's messy that everybody gets to see that's very public, we need to make sure we are obedient just the same in the small things as well as the big things. And that's what we're going to be looking at today. We're going to look at Scripture, the importance of Scripture, uh, something that would be considered something small and something that's going to be considered something big, but it all requires the same thing, and that's obedience. I don't have to like it. 
I don't have to love it. I just have to make sure that I follow it. But it's, it's like I have said before, like last week, it's your choice if you're going to do this. But God is the one who's always going to see, and you're not going to make an excuse where God's going to say, okay, Josh, you're, you're off the hook. I understand why you did that, so it's really not that big a deal. That doesn't cut it. That doesn't fly. Okay? So we need to make sure that, we're making, that we follow whatever Scripture says, like it or not, from something small to something big. Okay, so we're going to be in Luke chapter 16, verses 14 to 18. And I'm going to start with verses 16 and 17 about the importance of the scripture that we are trying to follow. Verse 16 says, The law and the prophets were proclaimed until John. Since that time, the good news of the kingdom of God is being preached, and everyone is forcing his way into it. It is easier for heaven and earth to disappear for the, than the least stroke of a pen to drop out of the law. So up until the time of John the Baptist, all the people had to live by was what the scripture but was by what the law and the prophets said. Everything that was written down by Moses for them to follow, that's what they followed. Everything the prophets said that they were supposed to do and how they were supposed to adjust their lives, that's what they were supposed to do. That was all that they could com compare their life to and say, yay, I'm doing good or I'm not doing so hot, but that was the standard. Jesus, when he came to this earth, he did not come to abolish the law or the prophets. When he came, he came to Fulfill him. He didn't come to say, you know what, that was option A. That really didn't work so well. Sorry about that. We're going to try option B. No. The law that, he, that God gave to Moses, he gave to Moses. And it was something that was good. If they followed it, it was, there was a blessing for them if they did it. It made their life better. When they did what God asked them to do, they felt better. There was a peace and there was a joy that they had if they were willing to follow what the law said. But the law also pointed out the fact that they were sinners. Okay, without the law, they weren't going to know that they were doing as many things wrong as they were actually doing. But the law was there to make it very obvious. You do not measure up. Okay? And then the law, it pointed to, it pointed to Jesus. Everything in the Old Testament law pointed to the fact that you are going to need a Savior. And it, it accumulated, or it culminated in Jesus. Jesus was the end of the law. He was the ending point of it. He was the perfect life. He lived the perfect life to be the perfect sacrifice so that we could have eternal life. Now I want to talk about the law or about the Old Testament for just a second because I, there's 39 books in the Old Testament law and I don't know how many people here are very familiar with those. I know a lot of it is very dry and it's very boring, right? There's a lot of laws in there that I don't think I have to follow. There's a lot of stories that are fun to read, but there's a lot of kings and chronicles and stuff that's like, okay, I'm going to read it if I'm going to put myself to sleep at night, right? That's about the only time I'm going to uh, even try to read through the Old Testament. But there's, there's still value in it. Uh, but, but before we get to a little bit of that value, when it comes to the Old Testament laws, there was three kinds of laws. There was the ceremonial laws, the governmental laws, or the civil laws, and the moral laws. So which of those do I have to follow? I don't really know. What am I supposed to do with all that? The first, the ceremonial laws had to do with following special days and seasons and months and years. It had to do with sacrifices and rituals. If you read anything in the Old Testament about that, you're off the hook. Okay? We don't have to do those. We haven't practiced those things. That was something specifically given to the Jews. It was pointing to the fact that, they were, that Jesus was going to be the ultimate sacrifice to pay for the sins of the world. Okay? It was just supposed to be a reminder to them of what was coming. So you do not have to follow the ceremonial laws. I don't know what percent of the Old Testament 
that is, but you don't have to do that part. There's the governmental laws, how to live, how to treat diseases, how to dress, uh, how to treat their slaves. That was meant to set them apart from all the other people around them. Okay, that's a specific culture, a specific time, and a specific place. That's not something that God's expecting us to follow today. We don't have slaves today. We don't have to dress a certain way. If we have certain diseases and sicknesses, we're not all of a sudden unclean where we have to go live out away from everybody, right? We can go to the doctor. We can get the medicine. I can come back into my house and still kiss my wife, and everything is just fine. We don't have to follow those kinds of rules. But the moral laws are the ones that transcend time. They're in the Old Testament as well as the New Testament. Those are the ones that we need to follow. Like, for example, the Ten Commandments. That's an Old Testament law, right? But all, nine of those ten are specifically stated in the New Testament. But let's just say they weren't. Let's just say it didn't say thou shalt not kill in the New Testament. Does that make killing okay now all of a sudden because it's not in the New Testament? I don't think anybody here wants to agree with that, right? Because that might be you're the one that's getting killed or someone that you love. But that's a moral law that's very obvious that it's in the Old Testament. We still need to follow it in the New Testament. The only one that people get away with is the Sabbath day because it's not specifically stated in the New Testament. But nobody's off the hook because in Hebrews chapter 10, verse 25, it says, don't forsake the assembling of yourselves together as some are in the habit of doing. Now that doesn't tell you to come to church every single Sunday, does it? Right? So you're kind of, it's, it's one that you, you, you kind of decide on your own, what am I going to do with this? But the, the idea is still there that we need to make sure that we are doing this as well. So we don't have to follow the ceremonial laws or the civil laws uh, or the moral laws. We just need to make sure we're following uh, the more. We do have to make sure we're following the moral laws. Did I just say we didn't have to? And nobody corrected me? Come on. Um, you know, the short answer to figuring out what do I do with, with, what, with what Scripture says, what do I follow and what do I not necessarily can get away with is found in Matthew 22, verses 37 to 40. Am I loving God when I do this? Am I loving my neighbor as myself when I'm doing that? Obviously, for example, with the Ten Commandments, if I'm lying to somebody, I'm not loving somebody, right? So it's pretty easy to see I need to follow that command. I'm not loving God if I say I'm going to worship or put something else in front of God as, the, as my Lord and Master, right? That is not going to be loving God. So the easy answer to figure out what do I do is to love God and, and love people because all the law and the prophets hang on those two commands. So that's the very most important thing that we need to do. Now, if you look and you say, okay, good, the Old Testament, I don't really have to follow. I, uh, I don't need to read. I would challenge you and I would encourage you to make sure that you do read the Old Testament. Uh, in Deuteronomy 6, 5, it says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, your soul, your strength, and your mind. Okay? Uh, Leviticus 19, 18 says, love your neighbor as yourself. Those are both specifically stated in the Old Testament, but they're and specifically in the New Testament, but there are other things like that that we can take and we can glean from in order, to, um, in order to live the way God wants us to. My all-time favorite book of the Bible is Nehemiah. Okay, this is the book I go to when I'm in a bad mood. And you just have to read it. I mean, I have gone from like a light switch mad. Okay, you know what could almost come out of my mouth? I could throw things, I could do anything, and go from a light switch mad by reading the end of the book. And I didn't realize that until I did it. And I was like, oh, and I'm not going to tell you why. You read the end of the book, I think you might understand why. 
But Nehemiah, there's, there's a couple of different things. And Cliff, you come to mind uh, for, for part of this. Because when they were supposed to be rebuilding the temple uh, or the, the walls of, of Jerusalem because they were destroyed, uh, I want to turn to this. And, and Cliff, you're, you're going to, I think, understand this as I say this. Esther and Nehemiah. And it, yeah, it's, it specifically works for Cliff because I could picture Cliff would be the one that is doing this. Um, okay, Shalom, son of Halasheth, whatever, ruler of a half district of Jerusalem, repaired the next section with the help of his daughters. Right, can't you guys all picture Cliff? Right, he's got the know-how to do that kind of stuff, and he's using his daughters. You, you read through this passage of this big list of people that you say there's nothing in there, you find that there's this man who's determined with his daughters they are going to complete this. You find out that there are the, the nobles who like, I'm not touching that with a 10-foot pole. And then you find out that there are priests or the Levites who are willing to get their hands dirty and try to do this. And you find that there's people who are willing to do multiple parts of this. And that's the part that I would just skip over like, Okay, well, that's a bunch of names. I don't care what that means. I don't understand. But I read through it, and I'm like, oh, there's Cliff. There's Cliff, as I read through that. So there is value everywhere. And I would challenge you to read it and to find the value. You just have to do a little digging and, and find it for yourself. So first of all, the law and the prophets were there, and now John the Baptist is on the scene, and he's preaching the way of salvation. Verse 16 it says, since that, that time, the good news of the kingdom of God is being preached, and everyone is forcing his way into it. Now, I was at coffee this week, and this, I don't know if this is a 100% accurate kind of picture, but this is what I get. When I get the idea of forcing your way into it, uh, somebody was talking about a hole, it appeared to be about this big, and they had calves. And a calf was able to go through a hole this big, right? Because I don't know, they were able to force their way into it, force their way through, through this hole, and so that they could get through. And I don't know if calves will necessarily do that kind of thing, if that's all it takes. I heard with the mouse, if they can get their nose in it, they can get their whole body into it. But that's what I picture is people are saying, we're getting into this. I know the Pharisees and the teachers of the law don't want us to get into heaven, but we're not letting anything stop us. We're not letting what these people say, what they require us to do. We are getting into this kingdom of heaven, no matter what it takes. Verse 17, it says, It is easier for heaven and earth to disappear than for the least stroke of a pen to drop out of the law. When it's talking about this law that now that uh, the Jews don't even have to follow, they don't have to follow the rules and the rituals and that, uh, the, the governmental kinds of laws anymore, um, he says the least stroke of a pen is not going to disappear. Think about like a period at the end of a sentence or a hyphen or the, exclama uh, the parentheses or the exclamation point. Those are all valuable, right? And Jesus is saying, uh, not even that is going to disappear unless heaven and earth disappear first. So this ground that we are walking on, this earth, third earth, third rock from the sun that we all enjoy, this is, not, this is going to have to disappear first before the least stroke of a pen disappears from the law. Okay, And if God cares that much about a little jot, a little tittle, a little period, or ex, uh, thank you, quotation marks, how much more do you think he cares about love your neighbor as yourself, love the Lord your God with all your heart, Thou shalt not steal, right? If he cares about a little scribbling by a pen, how much more is he going to care about what he actually said that he wants to be placed there? 
Whatever it is, whether it's something small or whether it's something large, it requires the same kind of obedience. And we're going to look at something that's, in, in man's eyes, is something considered very small to something that's very considered very large. Verse 14 and 15. The Pharisees who loved money heard all of this and were sneering at Jesus. He said to them, you are the ones who are justifying yourselves in the eyes of men, but God knows your hearts. What is highly valued among men is detestable in God's sight. Here you have people who are trying to show their innocence. They're trying to justify themselves. When I, when I bought my car, when I, when I give excuses for why sometimes I don't go to the men's coffee at 5 in the morning, I think I have a good excuse, and I want people to understand, okay, you have a good reason for not going. But that doesn't matter. It may, may be a good excuse in your eyes. It may be a good excuse in mine, but it's not in, in God's eyes. And so we always have to be very careful. And it, because it says... God knows the heart. God knows what's going on the inside. Yes, you tell me your excuses, I tell you mine. We all pat each other on the back and say, that's okay, I understand. But God's looking and saying, wait a second, people, that's not okay. That's not going to fly. It flies down here on earth, but it's not going to fly in his presence. The Old Testament says, man looks at the outward appearance. God looks at the heart. That's something else you can read in Scripture that is written in the Old Testament that's not I mean, that's also true in the New Testament. There's lots of valuable things in both. God knows why we do what we do. God knows why we don't do what we shouldn't do because he's looking at the heart. So let me ask you a question. Is there something that God is asking you to do that possibly nobody else knows that you are making excuses or justifying why I'm not doing it? Or is there something that God is saying, Josh, don't do this, but Josh is justifying why it's okay for him at this point to do this. For example, do you have an enemy that you need to love? Okay, so, someone that you, you know how to be polite to, but you, you, you always think bad of, that you never try to uh, interact with, that you never try to take care of, that you're not willing to forgive. Do you have somebody in your life that you just, they, they, the picture comes to your mind and you just can't stand them? Is there, do you have an enemy you need to love? Uh, is there a need that you need to give to? And it could be something as small as the Awana candy, right? No, not really. But if God's asking you to do, like, give a chunk of money to a missionary who's overseas serving God full time, is there, are you justifying in your mind, well, no, well, maybe if, if God wants me to do this, maybe he can write it on the wall, or maybe my spouse can have the same thought. Um, or, you know what, if I give that kind of money, I'm not going to have anything. Because we can justify and say, really, it's not that big a deal. God can use somebody else, right? He owns the cattle on a thousand hills. Are you justifying not doing it? Or maybe here's a really, I'm telling you, this is a really big one, okay? Is God asking you to change careers? Heck no, God's not asking me to do that kind of thing. Maybe he is, though. Maybe he's saying, you know, uh, whatever it is, if you're working with cattle, if you're working at the bank, if you're working at the school, if you're working out in the oil or the gas field, it's God putting on your heart that he says, you know what, I want you to do something else. And you think, you know what, I am no way I'm not going to do that. Because I have a good pay at this job. I have good retirement. Nobody in the whole world would understand why I did this. They would think I was crazy if I did that. And we can easily justify, tap, pat ourselves on the back, go to sleep, and ignore what God's prompting from us. Are you doing what God's asked you to do? Or is God tugging and, and just gently needling at you and saying, you know what, there's something that I specifically do not want you to do or something I specifically want you to do. If you have an excuse, how are you justifying that excuse? How are you justifying that sin? You convince us, that's fine. 
But God looks at what's on the heart, and so that's what really matters. So that's something that's considered small because it's something private that nobody knows. You have the Pharisees who love money. They don't want to share it. They don't want to give it. Everything's on the inside. Does that make it good? No, it's still wicked. It is still bad. It is still wrong. And so now we have to talk about this other thing. Okay, this is a big, bad word, and I, um, I think it's seven letters long. It's the word divorce. And I almost want to take off my glasses when I, when I talk about this because this makes me feel very uncomfortable. And I know it makes you feel very uncomfortable. And I know it makes the world, I, I mean, I'm assuming it makes the world of Christians feel uncomfortable. Okay, and this is, I was told one time, if you don't ever apologize for preaching scripture, and if ever I was going to apologize for preaching scripture, this would be it. And I even hate to say anything about this, because what is it? Pastor appreciation, right? People are like, uh, never mind, can I have whatever I stuck in that box back? Because I don't really appreciate this. But we're going to look and see what does God's word say about divorce. And God could have picked something else. Because I feel like it's a comparison between something that's uh, private, that's in my mind that nobody knows, to something that's very public. Divorce is very public uh, and very obvious, right? People know when people get divorced. It's not something that you can hide. It affects a lot of people. And so I can't apologize for it, but I have to talk about it because I know it's real. Uh, some of my best friends back in Davenport are divorced. And I, they, they see, I've, I've heard of couples who the second time around are so much happier than they were the first time. But that still doesn't make it right in, in the sight of God. So we want to look and see what does God's word say about divorce. And let's just get through it so we can, we can go home. Okay, uh, in the Old Testament, when it came to divorcing, almost 99% of the time it was something that the husband did. Women, sorry, you were just uh, a piece of property. You could be divorced for, for two reasons. The school of Shammai said that adultery was the only reason that you could be divorced. That's the only reason you could divorce your wife, which is really on the biblical side. Uh, the school of Hillel, women, you're all toast in this case. If you make a bad breakfast, I can write you a little certificate of divorce. If my wife puts on a dress and she twirls around and people can see her knees, that's showing too much skin. I can divorce her. Um, if, she looks, if she talks to another man, if, she, if she's disrespectful to me, if she talks about my mother-in-law in a negative way, then guess what? She can be divorced. Okay, So that's how bad it got in that culture where any and every reason was a good reason to divorce, which obviously we're all going to look and say, no, thank you. Right? That's, I, don't wanna, I shouldn't divorce my wife that way, and I would really hate to see people get divorced for that reason. We know that it, that's a really dumb reason to get divorced. But no woman in that culture was saved from it. But that's not what God intended. He intended for one man and for one woman to stay together. The only grounds for divorce was for marital unfaithfulness. Now that's not, that's not involving my money because my wife, my spouse, and I couldn't agree on money. That's not marital unfaithfulness. It wasn't because our, of our property or the way we raised our kids. That wasn't grounds for divorce in God's eyes. The only thing was for the sexual sin with another person was the only grounds that is given in scripture for divorce. Verse 18, let's go look, look at verse 18. It says, anyone who divorces his wife and marries another woman commits adultery. And the man who marries a divorced woman commits adultery. So, I, I've been married to my wife for 15 and a half years. I say, you know what? I want to be married to someone taller now. You know what? Because it makes it easier to dance like this than like this. Forgive me, I just made that up, forgive me. Um, 
and I divorce her, then I'm committing adultery if I go out and marry somebody else, right? Pretty obvious. Um, and it, it seems to be like there's a little bit more than, than that. Uh, if we look at Matthew chapter 5, verses 31 to 32, it says, It has been said, every, anyone who divorces his wife must give her a certificate of divorce. But I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife except for marital unfaithfulness causes her to become an adulteress, and anyone who marries the divorced woman commits adultery. So it looks like if I divorce Leslie, it affects her. It causes her to become an adulteress. And so if Leslie gets married to some other guy, the guy who marries her now commits adultery. So you just have this propagation or this keep continuance of adultery leads to adultery leads to adultery. And that's not okay. That's not what God had intended when people got married. He says it's one man, one woman, you stay together for a lifetime. If your spouse dies, then you're off the hook. If your spouse commits adultery against you, that's about the only thing you're off the hook for. Otherwise, you, you made those vows, and they're supposed to be till death do you part. Nothing is supposed to come between you and your spouse. Uh, Mark chapter 10, verses 2 to 12. We're going to read a little bit more about this. Some Pharisees came and tested him by asking, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? Well, what did Moses command you? And if we look at Deuteronomy 24, verse 1, it says, if a man marries a woman who becomes displeasing to him because he finds something indecent about her, and he writes her certificate of divorce, and he gives it to her, and he can send her away. So there was a law, but here's the reason for the law. It says, uh, Moses permitted a man to write a certificate of divorce and send her away. Verse 5, it was because your hearts were hard that Moses wrote you this law. Jesus replied, but from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh so that they are no longer two but one. Therefore, what God has joined together, let man not separate. Verse 10 says, when they were in the house, again, the disciples asked Jesus about this, and he answered, Anyone who divorces his wife and marries another woman commits adultery against her. And, she, and if she divorces her husband and marries another man, she commits adultery. So really, you, it looks to me like you're married, and if you get divorced, except for marital faithfulness, and you get married again, it's adultery. So teens, okay, any, anybody who ever thinks I'm going to grow up and marry somebody, please listen and make sure that when you marry somebody, that it's somebody who loves the Lord. Parents whose kids aren't here, go home and tell your kids, marry somebody who loves the Lord. Not because they're head over heels, not because they're good looking, all those things are going to pass away. All those giddy, excited feelings are not always going to be there. You've got to have somebody who's committed to have a relationship that's going to last, and it's got to be built on the Lord Jesus Christ if it is going to last. You know, Leslie and I were mar have been married for 15 and a half years. And I've, I've told, I remember Jennifer when we were first married, or first here a couple years ago, I don't know if you remember this, I told her a lot about the first years of her life. I remember telling Anita, and how big of a mistake Leslie made, okay? The first seven and a half years of marriage. And if, it, if, if this was okay, if it was okay to get a divorce, guess where I would be right now? I'd probably be on my fourth or my fifth wife right now if it was okay, because uh, Leslie knows how to cook, and so that's really nice, but we did not get along. We tossed that D word around all over the place, and we said, you do it. I am not going to be the one who commits this, uh, 
have this on my reputation. If you want to get a divorce, you do it. And we, so we just stayed together. We were miserable. We didn't like each other. We fought all the time. And maybe you look at us and think, how could someone that sweet be that ornery? <laughs> but I got an ornery streak in me a mile wide, okay? And, and we had, well, there's times where we have fought back and forth. And my kids see it sometimes, and they have seen it. But it's like we, we, had, we got to the point where we say, you know what? We can't do this. The only way we're off the hook is if you commit adultery against me. That's it. Otherwise, we'll make the best of it. Hopefully, I'll get this honor streak out of me, and we can keep going. So far, we're at 15 and a half years, working on 50, unless God will come back first to, to alleviate her pain. <laughs> the world's going to tell you that divorce is no big deal. The world is, is willing to justify any and every reason. You think about how, how long do Hollywood stars stay married? How many times do they get married, right? It's no big deal. Even inside the church, there's stats that say like two out of three couples end up in divorce. And so it's like everybody's doing it. It's not really that bad. Well, just because everybody's doing it doesn't make it right. It's still wrong. We still have to make sure whether it's something small that's, okay, that doesn't seem like a big deal to something huge. It's A to Z that's obedience that's required from God. So people, there are people who try different things. There are people who say, you know what, I got divorced. I'm not going to get remarried. I'm just going to shack up with somebody. That doesn't make God happy either. That's still wrong. There's also people who say, you know what, um, I'm not going to get remarried. I'm not going to shack up with anybody. But I know these words that you probably know, friends with benefits, right? I, I don't have to be married. I don't have to have all the commitment. But when I got a fix I need, I, I know how to get my, my needs met. That's not okay with God as well. So people are going to try all sorts of things for, an ex, for a loophole, for some other way to not be, divor to be divorced, but to still get what they want. We can justify it in our eyes, but it doesn't make it right in, inside God's eyes. Now, I know <clears throat> there are pastors who are willing to marry divorced people, and I know that there's pastors who are not willing to. I fall into the latter category because I feel like Scripture makes it clear. If you're married, and you want to get, if you're divorced and you want to get remarried, it's committing adultery. And I don't see how a pastor, even though there's pastors that I have respected who have done it, and pastors who I've respected haven't done it, I don't see how you can say it's okay. Um, one pastor friend of mine who said, I'm not going to marry somebody, their, their situation would be like, you know what, Leslie, uh, it's, I, I, I won't marry you and your, your boyfriend because it's not right. I'm not even going to go to your wedding because I don't think that it's right. But after the fact, He's like, okay, I'm going to welcome you like you're my friend because it's done. I mean, you're, you're, you're now a union, you're now together, and so I will accept you, but I'm not going to have any part of that. And that's the category that I find myself in. You could say, well, Josh, it's just a one-time sin. Well, it is. I mean, it is kind of a one-time deal, but so is murder. I, you know, if, if a pastor's not going to, I'm not, as a pastor, going to assist in an adultery, just like I'm not going to assist in a murder or in, in somebody cheating or in somebody stealing. It's just a one-time thing, but that does not make it okay. It doesn't make it right. God just makes it clear. The world says we can justify it. We can make it no big deal. But God has different views on those kinds of things. So maybe you're sitting there thinking, okay, uh, what do I do now? Because I'm that person who's divorced. Or I know, I mean, I have a sister going, just about to go through this divorce kind of thing. What, uh, if, if she gets divorced and she gets remarried, what, I'm, I'm not going to it. I'm not going to have a, a part in it if she does. But if she does, what, what, do, what do you tell somebody like that? Because I, I, I imagine there's a lot of shame and there's a lot of guilt 
Well, uh, the first thing I'd say is, is confess it because it says it's a sin. And then the second thing I'd say, you know what? I want you to think of your very favorite thing to do with your spouse. If it's to tickle them, if it's to kiss them, if it's to play Scrabble with them, go home and do it because you are married, right? Don't, don't run around with your heads hanging low because you're depressed because look at what I did. Go home and you're married now. Enjoy whatever you can as a married couple, okay? So that's, that's what I would offer. If you're in that situation or you know somebody who's in that situation, say, you know what? The deed's done, okay? Just enjoy it and make the most of it. But the, the bigger lesson that I want to get from this because I, I hate just hammering on just specific people, and it's obvious specific people, is make sure that whatever you are doing, whether it's something small that nobody sees, because I have a brain too, and I can think things, and I can have motives, I have to make sure that even though nobody sees this, that I'm accurately following God's word, that I'm obedient to it. To the biggest thing that you can think of, whether you say it's adultery, whether you say it's murder, we have to make sure that we're following what God's word says from A to Z. Okay, that's for everybody. Nobody's off the hook. So I challenge you to do this as I challenge myself and may God bless you for it, for following God's word as best as you can from A to Z. Okay, I challenge you to work on it and, and to do the best that you can and ask God to help you where you fall short. Let's pray. Dear God, you know we are a whole church, a whole nation, a whole uh, a whole group of fallen people, God. You know, we can't look at each other and we can't compare ourselves and say we're better than somebody else because we didn't do X, Y, Z, God, because we are all sinners in your sight, God. We all make mistakes. We all do the wrong thing from time to time. God, I need your help, too. God, I am not perfect by any stretch of the imagination. God, you know what runs around in my mind that nobody knows. You know uh, my motives for doing things that look like they're right, but you say, you know what, Josh, that's not even close. God, you know the, pup, the, the obvious things that I do that are not right as well. God, I just pray for each one of us that you would help us feel obedient and faithful to you from the small things of the A to the big things of the Z. God, help us to be obedient and help us to improve in a drastic way today. Not to be content with fooling each other because we know that you're not going to fool. And I just pray for your, your help to do this in a better way.